Welcome to the second episode of Thought Space, the podcast from the Center for Policy Research. CPR is an Indian think tank researching on various issues from urbanization to foreign policy, from economic reforms to environmental challenges. Today, Richa Bansal from the communications team will be in conversation with Yamini Ayer, a senior fellow at CPR and director of the Accountability Initiative. They will be talking about understanding bureaucracy from the bureaucrats' perspective. Hi, I'm Richa. At the inaugural Transformational India Lecture Series in August this year, started by the Niti Aayog, the government of India's think tank, Prime Minister Narendra Modi talked about the need for rapid transformation to meet the challenge of change and specifically stressed on reforming the Indian bureaucracy. In his words, we cannot march through the 21st century with the administrative system of the 19th century. In today's episode, we will talk to Yamini Ayer, a senior fellow at CPR and the Director of Accountability Initiative on understanding bureaucracy from the bureaucrat's perspective, drawing on her team's research on frontline bureaucracy in the education sector. Yamini, let me begin by asking you about the general perception of the Indian bureaucracy as corrupt, lazy and ineffective. What is your take on it? Richa, thanks for having me. This is the general perception. But let me also say, usually when we talk about the Indian bureaucracy, the picture that we have in our minds is of the IAS, the Babu in the white ambassador with the Lal Bati. However, the IAS constitutes a very small proportion of what is the Indian bureaucracy. The Indian bureaucracy is in fact about the lacks or lacks of workers on the ground, at the front lines, delivering education, running healthcare systems, running Anganwari systems. And in my view, bureaucratic reform can only really happen when we think about administrative reform from the bottom up, when we talk about reform from the perspective of the front line and then move our way up to the IAS, which represents the leadership. So our work has focused largely, almost entirely, on what happens at the ground and what bureaucratic reform would mean on the ground. So when you talk about a bureaucrat's perspective on bureaucracy, it is this perspective, the frontline's perspective on bureaucracy, that we focus on. So what have you learned about frontline bureaucracy through your research? What is India's Achilles heel? You know, Richard, when you, when, you, when you asked us the question about uh, India's bureaucracy being corrupt, India's bureaucracy being inefficient, uh, that this is absolutely true, and it's particularly true when we talk about India's frontline bureaucracy. We, talk, we have enough empirical evidence out there to tell us that our doctors, health workers, teachers don't show up, absenteeism rates are high, they are amongst the highest in the world, the quality of uh, care, the quality of teaching, the quality of service provision is extremely weak, corruption is high, the politician-bureaucrat nexus is particularly visible at the local level. Uh, so, so in a sense, um, everything that we know about the frontline bureaucracy is in fact true. You just have to travel around the country to see that. The question really is, what is the root cause of this problem? In our work, we try to get to the bottom of this, but we try to get the bottom of this, bottom of this from the perspective of the bureaucrat. Uh, in about 2012, we began a process of a series of interviews with block education officers uh, spread across five states in India, and the states were quite varied. So we had states like Bihar and Rajasthan, which are known to be low-capacity states, and states like Andhra Pradesh, Maharashtra, and Himachal, which are known to be high-capacity administrative capacity states. This is sort of common knowledge. Uh, and we, we, did, we did a series of interviews with these frontline bureau, uh, block education officers, trying to understand from their perspectives, what does it mean to be a block education officer? What is their role? What is their responsibility? Uh, how do they view their jobs? One common theme that ran across these very different administrative settings 
was that these bureaucrats pretty much described themselves as nothing but post officers. And when we probed a little further, we discovered that when they meant they were post officers, they didn't mean that they were post offices in the sense of an efficient system that moves paper from or letters from level A to level B and then gets them uh, uh, to the last mile. In fact, the Indian Postal Service is perhaps the most efficient of its entire administrative architecture. They meant that they were no more than mere cogs in a wheel, moving paper and moving orders from level A to level B. Uh, with very little uh, power or authority to, to do very much in their jobs. Can you illustrate with an example? Let me answer this question by giving you a glimpse into what it means to be a block education officer that we discovered through very detailed time use studies that we did uh, with these block officers. We tracked them over a period of two weeks, uh, hour by hour, trying to understand what they did through the day. Here's a summary. If you're a block education officer, chances are that your average workday will start with a phone call from your bosses at the district level, uh, giving you an order of some data or some information that needs to be collected and handed back to the district almost immediately. Uh, in one instance, uh, and this was not actually part of the study, but it's such an interesting story that it has to be told. Uh, all block education officers in, Maha in Madhya Pradesh uh, some years ago when we were in the field received a phone call uh, being told that on this particular day, they had to track that every single school was doing a Surya Namaskar as part and parcel of the regular school assembly on that particular day because the chief minister had announced that this was a sort of Surya Namaskar day. There was some context in which this happened. And all of a sudden, block education officers had to mobilize themselves, make phone calls, get onto their bikes and drive around schools to see whether the Surya Namaskar was happening, which by the way, only happens for a short period of time at the time of the school assembly. Uh, so, so much for whatever else they had to do. Uh, and this was very much what we saw during the course of our time use as well. The important thing is that because the bureaucracy operates basically on the principles of hierarchy, when these orders are given, at no point are the orders given with any consideration of the regular sense of activities that a bureaucrat, that a bureaucrat has to do as part and parcel of their job, or keeping in mind the time involved in actually fulfilling that job. And so you get a phone call, you identify what piece of information you have to provide back, back to the top. You make your own phone calls further down to your underlings, uh, asking them for the same kind of information. Uh, and uh, nine times out of 10, because the information requests uh, are, are on such a tight deadline, you make a few phone calls uh, and just pull some numbers together and forward this information back up. Whatever else you have to do uh, becomes irrelevant. So can you explain how their other responsibilities or regular responsibilities suffer as a result? A block education officer is supposed to do almost everything under the sun as far as administrating the education system is concerned. Uh, but the primary role of a block, the reason why we have a block in the administrative hierarchy of India is because a block is the closest unit uh, to where actual implementation happens. It's the closest unit to the school, it's the closest unit to the village, it's the closest unit to the health centre and so on. So in a sense, the block's administrative role is to be an aggregator of information and needs of the bottom, which it then feeds back up into the administrative hierarchy. And the administrative hierarchy is supposed to respond with decisions that the block is then able to pass on. so that that administration happens in a way that meets needs and, uh, and requirements on the ground. 
in Bihar, we actually tracked one level lower than the block, the cluster resource officer. The cluster resource officer was hired specifically for the perspective of providing academic support inside the classroom. So his or her job is much clearer than a block education officer that's supposed to do everything and therefore administrative tasks and responding to orders you could argue is part of their job. The cluster resource officer's job is basically to support teaching learning practices inside the classroom. When we tracked the time use of the cluster resource officers, we found that spending time in the classroom was the least of the cluster resources officers' actual set of tasks they spend in the day. The bulk of what they did when it came to the time that they spent actually doing their job was on fulfilling administrative tasks, which is essentially responding to the orders they got from the block who got them from the district. So in a sense, the entire administration is running around in circles, responding to orders that they receive from their superior hierarchies, giving information up and down. And the important thing is, in a hierarchical culture, you provide information up you never close the feedback loop. So the local officer who is collecting information and collecting data, A, doesn't understand the purpose for what it was uh, asked for, and secondly, at no point does he or she ever get that feedback loop closed to know what happened with that information. Further reiterating your role as a post officer rather than an agent that actually does something. Thanks so much for that very useful insight and the yawning gap between what one is meant to do and what one, one is asked to do. So let me ask you, how does one address this basis your research? Richa, you started this podcast by uh, uh, reminding us of Prime Minister Modi's words at the Niti Aayog uh, lecture series, where he made the very important argument that we cannot move India, transform India into the 21st century with the instruments of the 19th century. I completely agree with him. I'm not sure what he meant, but from my perspective uh, and from the perspective of the work that we have been doing, looking at the bureaucracy in terms of from the lens of social policy, the expectations of delivering social policy have transformed radically over the last 15 years, particularly as more and more money uh, and more expansion happened of the welfare state, whereas absolutely no effort has been made in terms of administrative reform and capacitating the local bureaucracy to be able to deliver on this expectation. And this expectation is not just in terms of tangible inputs, more money going into the system, it's also in terms of intangible expectations of delivery. In the UPA years, for 10 years, we made a radical transformation in how we think about welfare. Uh, we are not about, the, the idea was to move away from welfare in terms of schemes and programs towards a much grander vision of a rights-based welfare program. So for example, we moved from the Sarvash Shiksha Abhyan to the right to education. And while this shift may have been quite clear in the minds of our legislators and the policymaking elite and civil society, at no point, and we've actually looked at some of the training documents, at no point was there any effort made to explain what it means to deliver a right as opposed to a scheme at the ground level to the block education officer or the cluster officer. Even some of the schemes that we have, Swachh Bharat, it is now widely acknowledged that you cannot have Swachh Bharat just by constructing toilets. It is about behavior change. Education itself, it's now widely acknowledged and the Prime Minister says it himself in many of his speeches. It's not about constructing schools, it's about ensuring that children learn. Suddenly, we expect that technocratic babu uh, to be move away from thinking about solving problems by building roads, building schools, building toilets, to engaging with very complicated aspects of teaching and learning, complicated aspects of social behavior change. 
but we've not really thought about what it means to do that. We just expect that the same structure as it had been, as it has existed from the 19th century on, will be able to deliver on this very new thing, which I'm not sure that any welfare state anywhere in the world has had to face these kinds of challenges and has these kinds of expectations placed upon them. So what needs to be done? The only way that this will happen is if the agent of, uh, of implementation begins to recognize their role not as one of passive order following, but as an active agent of change, where they consider this themselves as professionals that are accountable for the actual delivery of outcomes on the ground. This requires a combination of bottom-up information, more participation. It's now widely acknowledged in all policy and development literature that citizens' participation is critical to resolving some of these very complicated social problems that governments uh, and welfare states are now expected to deliver on, as well as of being able to exercise discretion at the right level for the right kind of things. In most of our reform, particularly of the frontline bureaucracy, we have assumed that the solution to the problem will lie in disciplining the frontline bureaucracy so that they can follow rules and, uh, uh, and follow orders to the T and get things done. Whereas all our work is suggesting that in fact following orders will continue to make you feel so passive that you actually don't address the complicated problems that you need to address. The question to be asked is, can a Weberian system actually solve problems that requires a much more Habermasian, deliberative architecture? And if we believe that the answer lies in the latter, that uh, social policy problems will only be resolved through greater deliberation, then we need to think about the bureaucracy and administrative reform very differently. We need to move away from this very centralized structure to a far more decentralized one where local administrators are in fact empowered to take decisions that make sense for them locally. We need to really understand at what level does discretion make sense and at what level does centralization make sense? And for what specific function and reallocate functions accordingly? So for example, a teacher knows best how his or her classroom should be organized based on what children in their classroom know. However, technical things like designing curriculum may well be an activity that can be centralized and done at a, more, at a higher level of government. So how do we align functions in a way that marries the need for dis discretion at the right level so that there is more autonomy at that level with the need for centralization of some tasks that are naturally aligned to centralization? Administrative reform needs to go back to these first principles. Thanks very much for that, Yamini. Indeed, it is finding the right balance between centralization and decentralization, discretion and authority. So let me ask you, how do you plan to use your research findings? One important theme that we want to bring into debates on social policy and administrative reform is that accountability will only be achieved when you are able to institutionalize this balance between discretion and centralization. And we do this by repeatedly making this claim and bringing this issue onto the table in discussions on administrative reform. The second way in which we have been using our work is to study the, the rollout of reforms and bring in the perspective of the frontline bureaucracy as being central to our understanding of why reforms work and don't work. 
Uh, two important examples of this. One is a study that we did in Bihar in 2013 and 14, where we studied the, the rollout of a pedagogical reform called Mission Gunvatta that was run by the government of Bihar in partnership with the NGO Pratham, which was attempting to focus the entire education bureaucracy on improving learning outcomes in elementary schools in Bihar through changes in pedagogy uh, and uh, classroom organization in Bihar's elementary schools. Our work went in to try and understand the process of rollout of this reform from the perspective of the bureaucrats at the front line, particularly the cluster resource uh, coordinator who was in charge of implementing this uh, reform. And while the reform sort of plateaued and didn't, uh, uh, didn't reach its logical conclusion owing to a wide range of uh, obvious reasons, change of leadership in the top, uh, you know, elections, political shifts and so on and so forth, when we actually studied this, we brought home the fact that the perspectives of the local administrators also played a very important role in, uh, in, in breaking the momentum that the initial flow of this uh, reform had created and ensure, and over time the reform didn't stay. Such as? For instance, the frontline administrator, because as I had mentioned earlier, views their jobs very much as passive agents that follow rules and orders, they never really consider themselves as people who can actually initiate change inside the classroom. So the cluster resource coordinator considers the problem of children learning in schools, a problem that is caused by policy, a problem that is caused due to the socio-economic context in which these schools, uh, most government schools run, due to the administrative burden that they have to shoulder, due to the lack of staff, a whole host of reasons. At no point did these officers actually see their role uh, in providing academic support to, to teachers, etc., which is what they're supposed to do, as being critical to improving the capability of children to learn once they come into school. Interestingly, even those cluster resource officers that had participated in the reform effort and with their own eyes, by their own admission in, in the interviews that we had with them, actually saw fundamental changes when classroom practices were tweaked a little bit. Uh, when, we, when they saw those changes, they agreed to the fact that those changes happened because of a role that they played. But from the long-term perspective, when we asked them whether, therefore, don't they think that they have a role to play in changing classroom dynamics and improving learning, they fell back on what they know, they are just passive agents and the problem of learning is a problem that comes from somewhere else. In fact, it was very interesting that many of these officers would say, Agar sarkar chahti hai, to bohut kuch karti hai. Reform, kar sakti hai. reform can happen if the state wants reform to happen. At no point did any of these people actually reflect on the fact that they themselves are sarkar and therefore they actually can do something and indeed they have by participating in this pilot reform process and showing change. But that, that mindset is so strong that ideas don't get embedded inside the agents of change and they don't consider themselves agents of change. So when the pressure for reform goes away, the principles of those reforms also disappear and you fall back to business as usual. What is the second example you had mentioned? The second example is of what's happening in Delhi today. Uh, the Delhi government is undertaking a range of reforms aimed at, particularly aimed at changing classroom practices in secondary schools. Uh, that process of reform is underway as we speak and we have the privilege of studying how it's being rolled out. Again, our perspective is to understand how the different stakeholders involved in this reform process are viewing these changes, particularly this attempt to shift mindsets and how classrooms should be organized, what pedagogical practices should look like, how one should assess children, etc., etc. Uh, so we are in the process of studying that and we hope that this work too will contribute to the thinking uh, of the Delhi government in terms of how it's rolling out these reforms. So in addition to this upcoming research which you're doing with the Delhi government, is there anything else you've planned 
along these lines as part of your research? Thanks for asking that question. We in fact have just rolled out an experimental project that uh, we think will be very interesting. Uh, one of the things that we discovered uh, in our field work uh, on uh, local bureaucracy in education is that in fact the local bureaucracy in India from the district at, uh, uh, or downward I suppose is the word to use um, is in fact a big black box. It's interesting to note that the second administrative reforms commission wanted to find out a simple statistic. How many district magistrates and district collectors, uh, sorry, how many committees are district magistrates and district collectors sitting on within their district? A simple enough statistic, nobody had the accurate answer. They had to commission a study and even that study could only find that answer through a case study in one district. Uh, so not only is the block a big black box, but the district magistrate's office itself is a big black box. Uh, so we want to try and unpack that black box and we want to go to the hard place first. So we are going to the blocks. Uh, our uh, field colleagues, uh, field researchers have identified one block each in the different states in which they work. Uh, and over the course of this next year, uh, they're going to actually follow that block to try and unpack A, actually first just map the block, how large it is, how many uh, posts it has, who the functionaries are, what their backgrounds is, and then follow the activities of a block over the course of a, of a year to really understand what a block actually does. We hope that that will give us some important empirical evidence on what block administration looks like and that we can move up from there to understand district administration as well. So we hope in the course of the next couple of years to be able to give you a map of district, and district administration in India, uh, which is currently a big black box. Thank you very much, Yamini. That sounds like very exciting research and we are going to look forward to the findings. This was a great um, uh, discussion on bureaucracy from the bureaucrats' perspective. Thank you again. Thank you, Richard. If you enjoyed this episode of Thought Space and want to learn more about the research CPR does across various topics, please subscribe to our mailing list and social media channels through our website www.cprindia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at CPR underscore India.